Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Flama. Secutor. Lived 30 years. Fought 34 times. Won 21 times. Fought to a draw nine times. Defeated four times. Assyrian by nationality. So reads the gravestone of Flama the Gladiator. And while it seems glib at best to reduce even a great athlete's life to a few statistics, a closer look at the details behind the dozen and a half Latin words and five numbers speaks volumes about a man who, all things considered, may be the greatest athlete of all time, any time, any sport. Let's break it down. Flama, Secutor. Stories of the gladiator games continue to be told in movies and on TV, but such betrayals typically watered down the complex nature of the blood sport. Each contest involved elaborate rules, and the gladiators themselves chose one of several distinct types of combat style in which to specialize. Flama was a secutor, and the fact that this appears in his epitaph only second in prominence to the man's name implies that the name Flama was more or less synonymous with the secutor style in the 2nd century AD. Lived 30 years, fought 34 times. We know essentially nothing of Flama's early life until he enlisted in the Syrian army. He later joined the Roman army, but was sold away to a gladiator trainer for reasons of discipline by the time he was 19. Flama clearly took the gladiator game, fighting an average of once every four months for 10 plus years. Won 21 times, fought to a draw 9 times. Depending on how that's calculated, that's a winning percentage of 61.8%, 75%, or 84% in a frequently lethal sport in which the most common career record was 0-1. Defeated 4 times. The more one learns about Flama, the more difficult it is to imagine anyone beating the man in an arena at all. But there they are on the permanent record, 4 losses. Those who have seen a disproportionate number of fanciful movies about the gladiators might assume that Flama was awesome enough to have sustained mortal wounds four times over, only to get up and fight again on at least three occasions. But while gladiatorial combat is indeed one of the most lethal sports ever played, not even close to every contest ended in death or even mortal wounding. Indeed, most matches ended in surrender. Why? Just as today, an athlete in ancient Rome represented an investment of tons of money, time, and resources to feed, house, train, and heal the fighters. The Roman arena games were run by a complex infrastructure involving dozens beyond the gladiators themselves, including coaches, trainers, physicians, patrons, sponsors, referees, assistant referees, and at least one more judge per match outside the combat arena known as an editor. The manager of a stable of gladiators might 
charge an event's patron as much as 1,000 times the immediate value of a fighter should he die in a match. Thus, were steps taken to avoid fatalities. Nevertheless, estimates figure that a first-time fighter had a 33% chance of being killed in his first fight and a 10% chance thereafter. The pure mathematics, therefore, say that the average fighter had just over a 2.02% chance of surviving to a 34th match. Flama the Gladiator was clearly no average fighter. So how did he lose four times? A precise answer may never be known, but we might assume that at least one or two of Flama's losses were staged. Higher profile cards might end with the Emperor himself taking to the arena to fight a gladiator, with the tacit understanding that the gladiator would take a couple of hits from the Emperor's weapons of choice and surrender so as to allow the Emperor the victory as a symbol of the eternal power of the Roman Empire, as embodied by its unbeatable ruler. Flama's epitaph closes with Assyrian by nationality. This may have been a particular point of pride on the part of he who commissioned the gravestone as Syria was a Roman province on the rise during Flama's lifetime. Flama lived at some unknown period in the 2nd century AD, he may have been alive to see the Roman garrison in Syria shut down the Bar Kokhba revolt in the 130s and expand its territory to become Syria-Palestinia. He may have even been fighting the revolt in the army. He may have seen the ascendance of Septimus Severus, a Syrian citizen himself, to the position of emperor in 193 AD. One thing we can know is that Flama's mammoth reputation certainly wasn't hurt by being known as a Syrian. At 21, 4, and 9, Flama is very likely the all-time leader in matches fought, matches won, and even matches lost among gladiators. But his single most astounding statistic does not appear on his gravestone. The highest award a gladiator could win was the Rudis, awarded after a particularly brilliant performance in a match. The trophy was a simple wooden sword, but to win the Rudis was to win all the rights afforded full Roman citizens, whereas gladiators sold into the game like Flama had been were classified as infamis, along with prostitutes and certain types of entertainers. Naturally, Flama was awarded the Rudis, and he declined the award and his freedom four times. We may add this to the incredible exploits of Flama the Gladiator, but surely few would pass up the Rudis once. To pass up twice is unthinkable. Four times? Now that is devotion to a sport. The nearly legendary devotion of Flama, the greatest gladiator of all time. My name is Oz Davis, and this is Truly the Goats. Sports history as told through its superstars. When looking back at the sports of ancient Greece and Rome, we're prone to comparisons with modern-day sports. Why not? After all, historians, thinkers give credit to these ancient empires for the foundations of Western civilization in philosophy, science and mathematics, spirituality, art, culture. In addition, the games played in the earliest Greco-Roman organized sporting events remain recognizable today. It's no coincidence that Pierre de Quebreton based his concept for an international multi-sport competition on the Olympic Games of Ancient Greece. And it's no coincidence that a return of the Greeks' actual Olympic sports in 1912 sealed the success of the Games forever. Even the organized chariot racing 
loved by Roman citizens since the dawn of Rome itself is still recognizable across the world, thanks to Hollywood dramatizations, streaming TV, and Pulp Fiction narratives. Not to mention the continued popularity of steeplechase racing, a mellower descendant of chariot racing. But the gladiator games of ancient Rome? Let's just say that any comparison to any sport in any culture from any time period is limited to the superficial. Ancient Rome's gladiator games could well be the musot, the most unique sport of all time. TV and movies may have us believe that we know the basics of the gladiator games and the pageantry of the arena. The multicultural, multi-gender crowd rapidly churning for blood, the perfectly sculpted athletes performing with flair and cries of victory or pain, all backed by a blood-pumping heavy metal soundtrack loud enough to prevent thinking! That's better. The truth is that over 2,000 years of storytelling, the lives and the times of the gladiators and their sport have become well-exaggerated, so that today it's easy to believe every match ended in death, and that fans idolize the gladiators as heroes the same way we might idolize a sports star today. We tend to believe that the games were exciting affairs of pure sporting excellence, but nothing can emphasize more the alienness of Roman culture circa 180 AD more than a deep dive into the world of gladiators. Welcome to the world of the gladiator, a strange world full of contradictions. This is where the dishonored learn to live and die with honor. Here, the artist is despised as his art is respected. And in turn, many gladiators scorn the spectators at the arena, but yet are dying, sometimes literally, to entertain them. For the right kind of person, the arena offers riches, fame, and personal redemption. And even the wrong kind of person gets the chance at an honorable death. And anyone considering a gladiatorial career is probably well aware that worse things can happen. In fact, many gladiators chose the profession precisely because those worst things would otherwise happen to them in the near future. From Gladiator, the Roman Fighter's Unofficial Manual, by Philip Matijak. Truly the Goats promises to bring cultural context to the stories of the greatest athletes of all time. And just wait until you hear more about the subculture of Flama, the Roman gladiators, and that one crazy emperor that wanted to be one. For this episode, I spoke with Philip Matizic. Everyone calls him Matty. Matty has written over two dozen books translated in over 15 languages on the subject of ancient civilizations, including Ancient Rome on Five Denarii a Day, the Classical Compendium, a miscellany of scandalous gossip, body jokes, peculiar facts, and bad behavior from the ancient Greeks and Romans, the 24 Hours in Ancient History series, and Gladiator, the Roman Fighter's unofficial manual. Here's our conversation. Maddie, thanks for joining us on Truly the Goats. A pleasure. I'd like to get into the specifics of possibly the greatest gladiator of all time, Flamma. But before we start that, I'd like to get some more generalities about the gladiator games and the feeling of the games at the time. How did the gladiator games start in the first okay. place? There's a lot of argument about that, even among the Romans, because they were quite curious as to where this began as well. Some of them think it began with the Etruscan tradition and others with the Campanians. But... Um, the first gladiator games that we actually come across are in 264 BC in Rome. And they actually started as what's called a munus, which is the duty of a son to stage a decent funeral for his father. And one of the guys got the idea of having gladiators fight at the funeral. 
So gladiator games were originally part of funeral rites. And then over the centuries, they sort of gradually separated from that and became more a political type thing. Isn't the same thing true of chariot racing as well? Because I understand that used to be a funeral festivity event. Is that true? Oh, yes. Chariot racing has a history that goes way back to Homer. It had a religious context insofar as everything the Greeks and Romans did had a religious context. But chariot games were, chariot races were much more basically a spectator sport from the word go. Flamas competing basically at the height of the popularity of gladiator games. But how popular were the games? What kind of people attended the games and, and followed the sport? Okay. First of all, since you brought up chariot racing, here's a quick comparison for you, and that's the, the largest gladiatorial arena, which is the Circus Flavius, which today we mis incorrectly know as the Colosseum. That could hold, depending how well they were packed in, between 60 to 80,000 people. Go down the road to the Circus Maximus, which was for chariot racing, and you can hold up to twice that many people, which gives you some idea of the relative popularity of the two events. And bear in mind that gladiator shows were almost never just gladiator shows. They were also combined with other events that also happened in the arena. Normally, other events happened in the morning and the gladiator shows happened in the late afternoon. We tend to have this idea about Roman culture as, you know, the sporting events or the artistic events were all about bread and circuses. But mm -hmm. were these things regularly scheduled? Could you plan your day around attending the games and, and whatnot? It depends when, what your day, when your day was. Some days, for instance, if you have the Saturnalia, which is a two-week festival, normally you could find a gladiator show going on at that point. If the emperor was feeling particularly pleased with himself for something, he might stage games to commemorate, say, the successful invasion of yet another bunch of barbarians. But the, the games weren't a regular daily event by any means. They were fairly big things which were scheduled every couple of months, at the very most once a month, depending where you were and what the event was. So how would a typical gladiator event come off let's say i'm somebody living in that time and i'm gonna attend the games take me through that process what would i do do i buy a ticket do i get popcorn and stuff i mean do, <laughs> do i have a, a pennant that i'm waving how do, what's that like now this is rather like um going to a game in modern united states it depends what game you're after you, if you're talking baseball for example you can go and attend your local little league, all the way up to attending one of the big events in a huge stadium. It's the same with gladiators, where if you really want to see the bottom of the heap, you go into some small provincial town where a traveling circus comes round that stages a inverted commas gladiator bout in which everyone tries very hard not to hurt each other. Or you can go to the top of the league to a day in the Colosseum where um, you do need to get tickets. I, I presume you're more interested, since you're doing the GOAT, you're more interested in the Coliseum event. <laughs> Please, I, I'd like to know about, you know, the Super Bowl. Okay, <laughs> Attending yeah. the Super Bowl of gladiator events. I assume that there are fans. I assume that people are making bets. So, again, how is that? Uh, is it a very big deal? Is it in the news, the equivalent of the news? Okay, let's do it. Let's go for a day at the Coliseum. 
right? Now, the first thing you need to do is you need to actually get a ticket to this thing. You can't, you can't just turn up and say, hi, I want a seat, because these are given out as friends, as favors. And once you've got your ticket, you then have to check very carefully, as you do with a modern stadium, your gate number and your seat number. Because you can't just sit anywhere in the Colosseum. The front two rows are reserved for senators. And, and this is an interesting point, for the Vestal Virgins. The ranks behind that are for equestrians, the second rank of um, the Roman society. Then comes your average plebs. And the very top tier, what today we'd call the nosebleed section, is where slaves and women are allowed to go insofar as um, women were allowed to go. That wasn't the case in all arenas. But bear in mind that the way the Colosseum was built, if you've ever been there, it's actually remarkably intimate. Um, even at the top rows, you actually get a very good view of the action. Yeah, I have been there, and they, as they say about modern stadiums, there's not a bad seat in the house. Yeah. It is fantastic. Extremely well designed. And the interesting thing is these huge passageways that decanted people onto the street after the games, these were actually called vomitoria. Wow. <laughs> some idea of the speed that they ejected people. <laughs> <laughs> but... Anyway, once you're sitting there in your seat, you get the normal presentation. The person who presents the show, by the way, is called the editor. And then you get, for instance, dancing girls, acrobats, people throwing little presents into the crowd with the catapults and that kind of thing. You, if you're betting, by the way, you do it discreetly because the Romans frowned on betting as immoral. So while people did bet and bet a lot, and you weren't really supposed to, then you would move on to some of the, in the morning, probably you'd get a venatio, which is a um, beast hunt where exotic animals are brought in and killed for the delectation of the spectators. And then the body is hauled away, chopped up and served as exotic dishes to the aristocracy. Lunchtime was sometimes the most depressing bit of it, because while everyone's gone for lunch, they execute condemned prisoners. Just is, in the ground? Just like... As a halftime show or whatever? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. One, one of them, I think it was Seneca, writes that this is one of the most brutal and degrading spectacles you can see, where a man is basically given a sword, told to kill a defenseless man, then the sword is taken off him, and he's killed by the next guy up, and so on. There's nothing so ruinous to good characters to idle away one's time at some spectacle. Vices have a way of creeping in because of the feeling of pleasure that it brings. Why do you think that I say that I personally return from shows greedier, more ambitious, and more given to luxury, and I might add, with thoughts of greater cruelty and less humanity, simply because I have been among humans? The other day, I chanced to drop in at the midday games, expecting sport and wit and some relaxation to rest men's eyes from the sight of human blood. Just the opposite was the case. Any fighting before that was as nothing. All trifles were now put aside. It was plain butchery. The men had nothing with which to protect themselves, for their whole bodies were open to the thrust, and every thrust told. The common people preferred this to matches on level terms or request performances. Of course they do. The blade is not parried by helmet or shield, and what use is skill or defense? All of these merely postpone death. In the morning, men are thrown to bears or lions. At midday, to those who were previously watching them. The crowd cries for the killers to be paired with those who will kill them and reserves the victor for yet another death. 
This is the only release the gladiators have. The whole business needs fire and steel to urge men on to fight. There was no escape for them. The slayer was kept fighting until he could be slain. Kill him! Flog him! Burn him alive! The spectators roared. Why is he such a coward? Why won't he rush onto the steel? Why does he fall so meekly? Why won't he die willingly? Unhappy as I am, how have I deserved that I must look on such a scene as this? Do not, my Lucilius, attend these games, I pray you. Either you'll be corrupted by the multitude, or, if you show disgust, be hated by them. So stay away. Excerpted from Seneca the Younger's Epistle Number 7 on Crowds, circa 63 AD. And of course, sometimes they would liven things up, for instance, by giving a guy a tunic that was coated in tar or pitch and then setting it alight and seeing how far he could sort of caper around before he incinerated himself. Jeez. So pretty gory stuff. Wow. In fact, there's a, now there's a Roman joke I can give you. Um, it was just a comment which somebody put saying, so-and-so stole a tunic. To disguise it, he smeared it with pitch. Nice. Of course, stealing a tunic gets you the death penalty. Right, exactly, exactly. As soon as you do that, <laughs> you're a goner. Okay, so when you say lunchtime, the folks on the ground level, in the good seats, they're actually eating while the executions are going on? It depends. A famous anecdote of the Emperor Augustus, although this was at the races, he was sitting in his imperial box and he looked down and saw this guy unwrapping his sandwiches. And he remarked in a rather lofty voice, I go home to eat. And the guy looked up at him and said, well, nobody's going to steal your seat, are they? <laughs> Fantastic. This is all making it sound like it happened last week, <laughs> to be honest. So then I guess after the lunch break, the festivities begin with, with uh, gladiators. Yeah. Normally you sort of aim at around three o'clock to kick off with the gladiators. Say around three to five would be a reasonable estimate. <clears throat> you don't have that many gladiators because they're a finite resource, especially good gladiators. So you might begin at the with with a Samakia battle, which is staged between two groups of prisoners of war or something like that, just to get everyone in the mood before you get on to the real stuff for the connoisseur, which is the mano a mano paired off gladiators. Again, Flamma is fighting around the peak time of the gladiators. And the emperor of this time is Commodus, who you mentioned quite frequently in your books, dealing with gladiators and subjects like that. Talk to me about Commodus. Okay, Commodus is the underwhelming son of one of Rome's best emperors. And so he starts off life with a huge inferiority complex. And also, up until his dad, who's Marcus Aurelius, the four emperors before him have been chosen by merit. So Commodus comes up and his only qualification for the job is he is the son of Marcus Aurelius. So he launches into it with a huge inferiority complex, which he tries to compensate for. And instead, he basically ends up annoying everybody. And one of the things is, like many Romans, he's fascinated with gladiators. Um, unlike many Romans, he's got the means to do something about it. So he actually fights in the arena himself sometimes. And the result is that after he was um, assassinated, he had suffered what is called damnatio memoria, which means you're not allowed to mention the guy anymore. So when people wanted to talk about him, they called him the gladiator, 
or sometimes the charioteer. And of course, you've seen his most famous appearance in the arena is in the movie Gladiator. It's done. And what of my nephew? And what of his mother? Should they share her lover's fate? Or should I be merciful? But actually, um, those people, those gladiators who fought Commodus and, of course, carefully let him win, were normally spared afterward. <laughs> right, right, right. The point was that ultimately these fights were staged, the ones with Commodus in them. I mean, he had to win to prove the might of the emperor. Well, can you imagine what would happen to a gladiator who accidentally killed him? Yeah, who killed him. Right, right. But that's very interesting that Commodus was so fascinated with this guy because weren't, I mean, wasn't the standing of the gladiator in society super low? Okay, this is one of those things you've got to recalibrate and not look at it from a modern perspective. A gladiator was in one way, the lowest of the low. He is already, technically speaking, a dead man. Okay, he, he's the walking dead. And what he's done as becoming a gladiator is he's got the first foot on a ladder of redemption. He's taken the first step to getting himself back into society. And it's a step that is normally not available any other way than being a gladiator. So a gladiator is basically, from the Roman point of view, about redemption, not about death. This gladiator is a condemned criminal. He's a prisoner of war who would otherwise be executed. He's somebody who would otherwise, quite often, he's given the choice. Do you want to be fed to the beasts or do you want to become a gladiator? So he's somebody who is starting as low as you can get but has the chance to work his way up to become a normal member of society again. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought this up that the gladiators are essentially condemned, basically, because Flama, of course, was a Syrian who was taken as a prisoner of war. But how does that work? Obviously, the Roman Empire has a huge reputation at this point in history. But did he know that if he was taken as a POW, he'd be made into a gladiator? Was he given a choice? How did that work? Well, to some extent, it's always a choice to be a gladiator. I mean, okay. if you fold up your arms and say, I'm not fighting, there's not a lot they can do. <laughs> and there are cases of some Germans who are told, you're fighting in the arena. And they said, well, like hell we are. And they killed themselves beforehand. For example, there was lately in a training school for wild beast gladiators a German who was making ready for the morning exhibition. He withdrew in order to relieve himself, the only thing which he was allowed to do in secret without the presence of a guard. While so engaged, he seized upon the stick of wood tipped with a sponge which was devoted to the vilest uses and stuffed it just as it was down his throat. Thus he blocked up his windpipe and choked the breath from his body. This was truly to insult death. Yes, indeed, it was not a very elegant or becoming way to die. But what is more foolish than to be over nice about dying? What a brave fellow. He surely deserved to be allowed to choose his fate. How bravely he would have yielded a sword. With what courage he would have hurled himself into the depths of the sea or down a precipice. From Seneca the Younger's Epistle Number 70, 
on the proper time to slip the cable. Circa 64 AD. So to be a gladiator is to some extent a choice, but it's not much of a choice when you're told, okay, um, you either execute you now or you can come to Rome and be sold as a slave. And the slaves, um, somebody would look at them on the block and say, hmm, that one's got gladiator potential and um, interview him. And if he seems suitable, then recruit him. What can you tell us about the daily life of a gladiator? A lot depends on your gladiator, because we've been talking about the condemned people, but there's also a class of gladiator called the Auctoratus. And this is a gladiator who's basically a free man, who's chosen the profession voluntarily. And gladiators are a very hierarchical society. So your top gladiator has completely different conditions to the condemned prisoner, Tyro, who's about to go into the arena for the first time. But the one thing they have in common is every gladiator trains and trains and trains. Literally train as if their lives depended upon it. That's exactly what they do. And um, they have a very specialized diet. They have doctors who attend to their every physical requirement. And they spend literally hours a day whacking away at a post, practicing their moves at the gymnasium, pushing weights. And we've seen from the bodies of gladiators that have been excavated from graves that these people were overmuscled to the point of deformity in some cases. So I wanted to do some myth busting because, of course, after 2,000, 1,900 years, however many you want to call it, we obviously have a very distorted picture of the gladiator life of the gladiator games from the movies and tv shows we expect um dismemberment constantly death constantly but the trainers had a ridiculous amount of money invested in these guys didn't he very much so yeah and um, what's more um, you had two different bunches you had the ludus which is the gladiator school and then you have the people putting on the show mm. and the people putting on the show rented the gladiators and they rented the gladiators on the you bake, you bake and you buy them. <laughs> and often, if somebody really wanted to be impressive, and of course the emperor wanted to be impressive all the time, then fights were actually advertised as to the death, meaning a lot of fights weren't. They were exhibition bouts, basically. So you could let them play through it and then oh, until yeah. one of them died. There's a famous story of the Emperor Nerva, who was feeling himself politically insecure. So he invited a group of top plotters, people he knew were basically conspiring against him, to a gladiator show at the arena. And the editor presents the emperor with the swords the gladiator will be using so that he can check they've not been blunted. Mm. The fact that this check exists shows that a lot of editors took great care that their gladiators didn't get too badly hurt. <laughs> yeah. And in this case, what Nerva did is he gave a sword each to the plotters and said, check and see how sharp those are. Basically saying, if you want to kill me, here's your chance. I dare you. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about a typical match with Flama. Okay, as I understand it, your high-level gladiators basically have four styles, or even today we might even call them positions to play, right? Um, Flama was a secutor, which is kind of the classic one that we associate with the helmet, with the chest exposed, you know, with the one arm covered, short sword. And he would be matched up against a certain style, which is which style? 
the retiarius, the net thrower. The net thrower, that's right. So how would a bout go down? The the emperor starts things off, or a bell rings, or what well, happens? Well, the event starts with a huge parade where all the gladiators and other performers are introduced. And um, then before the bout, if it's going to be a one-to-one with well-known gladiators, the gladiator is introduced, his victories are recalled, and he himself, of course, shows off madly towards the audience. But it's all, it's all about fame in this case, because you want the audience to really, really love you, because if you lose, <laughs> it's up to them, really, to decide what happens to you. Not technically, but quite often that's the de facto situation. Technically, it's the editor who decides whether a gladiator gets the chop off the fight. Right. Okay, so fight starts, and the ground is pretty huge. I mean, how many blows are struck? I mean, is it just a case where all you really got to do is knock the guy down and show mercy? How long would a fight be? Well, it depends on the fight. It depends on the gladiators. And, for instance, the Secator versus Retarius situation that we're looking at here. The secretary is actually wearing pretty heavy armor, and he's also got this um, mask over his head to stop the trident of the Retarius from stabbing at his eyes. So the fight, his ambition is to get there, close with the Retarius, and kill the bugger before he runs out of puff. And his opponent has exactly the opposite thing. He wants to skip around his enemy until the guy's exhausted, and then he can basically come in slash at vulnerabilities in the armor until the guy's weakened by blood loss and exhaustion and then basically finish him off. So that's a short fight if the Secretor wins and a long fight if the Retarius wins. So are the fans fans of particular styles? Oh, very much so, uh-huh. yes. There are some people who fancy the Thracians and others who fancy the Galli, etc., etc. What's your favorite? Everyone, I don't know. I'd probably go for the Momillo simply because a friend of mine fights that way. So, What does that particular style involve? This is a fairly heavy armor. Okay. It's the one that legionaries used to train as. Oh, okay. Because legionaries adopted a lot of their training style from the gladiators. There's a modern gladiator school in Germany called the Ludus Medusa, and they stage gladiator fights at museums, public events, etc. Hmm. And that's where I get a lot of my information from about gladiators. And if you have a look at the back of the gladiator book, you'll see we've actually got some pictures of those guys in action. The thing that we always note about Flom is the fact that he was offered this trophy called the Rudis. Yeah, it's, it's not so much a trophy as a symbol. You're released from your gladiator oath, and you are now basically a fully redeemed member of society. Remember us talking about this ladder of right. redemption? Right, right. Um, the rudest is the top of the ladder, whereas joining the gladiator school is the bottom. <laughs> and, then, and then you get to be a respected member of society again. Well, you're, you're still in pharmacy, but yes. And Vlama passed this up four times. Matty, mm-hmm. tell me why. Why? <laughs> okay, consider when Tiberius was holding funeral games for his father, Augustus. He wanted the very best gladiators in Rome at that time to fight. Some of these gladiators had been given their wooden sword and retired, so Tiberius wanted them to come out of retirement. And the asking rate that these guys said we'll fight for is 100,000 sestertii. Now, consider that if you're a plumber in ancient Rome or an average artisan, you earn 500 sestertii in a year. 
So basically what Tiberius was offering these guys for one bout was the equivalent of 200 years wages for an average workman. Now consider that you're a gladiator, you're somebody like Flammer. By the way, his name means flame. It's a stage name. You can earn these huge sums for fighting. You've got a lifestyle that's built around this. You've got a nice mansion. You've got slaves. You've got servant girls. And you chuck it in. You're back to being citizen Flammer with no obvious means of support. So it's not that being a gladiator is what he does. It's being a gladiator is who he is. It's what he is. And how do you give that up? The fame, the adulation, the money. <laughs> if you look up the funerary inscription of Flammer, mm -hmm. he dies at age 30. And would you care to guess what he dies of? <laughs> I don't know. Does he die in the arena? Does he die of uh, well, appendicitis? The Romans would not have specified on the tombstone what he died of, unless it was okay. something honorable. Okay. And coming second in a gladiator match probably doesn't count. Hmm. But we noticed that it was erected by a friend who was also a gladiator which suggests that he was active in the business at the time that he died. Right, he died a gladiator. Just look at the gladiators, either debased men or foreigners, and consider the blows they endure. Consider how they who have been well-disciplined prefer to accept the blow rather than ignominiously avoid it. How often is made clear that they consider nothing other than the satisfaction of their master or the people. Even when they are covered with wounds, they send a messenger to their master to inquire his will. If they have given satisfaction to their masters, they are pleased to fall. What even mediocre gladiator ever groans, ever alters the expression on his face? Which one of them acts shamefully, either standing or falling? And which of them, even when he does succumb, ever contracts his neck when ordered to receive the blow? From Cicero's Tusculan Disputation Number 2, circa 45 BCE. Flama the Gladiator, survivor of at least 33 matches in the arena, winner of 21, died at the age of 30. And while it seems glib at best to reduce someone's life to a few statistics, can we really believe that Flama would have wanted it any other way? For amid the many oddities of ancient Rome's gladiator subculture, one aspect of Flama's story that stands out is his acceptance of the sport as his identity. From the viewpoint of the 21st century U.S., Flama's willingness to pass up retirement in favor of two or three brushes with death per year might be considered self-destructive unto insane. On the other hand, in our most dangerous contemporary sports, such as auto racing and American football, such devotion would be admired. As Maddie said, being a gladiator is not what he did, it was who he was. He was Flama the Gladiator. Since this is truly the GOATS, I had one more nearly obligatory question. And since this is a podcast, nearly every question leads down a rabbit hole. Is Flama the greatest gladiator of all time? Well, that depends. You know, everyone has their own idea of who's the greatest gladiator. <laughs> uh, you in the book, read that um, quote from uh, Marshall about his favorite, a guy called Hermes. Tell me about Hermes. Hermes, the greatest fighter of the day. Hermes, skilled with every weapon. Hermes, both gladiator and doctor. We'll come up to that later. <laughs> Hermes, the hurricane, terror of the arena. Hermes, who frightens Helios and is the only man who can. Hermes, who knocks down Advalans and is the only man who can. Hermes, the ticket sculptor's gold mine. Hermes, the darling and heartbreaker of the ladies. Hermes, proud with his spear, threatening with his trident, fearsome with his helmet. Hermes, the glory of all kinds of war. Hermes, everything in himself and three times unique. <laughs> wow. 
Wow. So, Marshall seems to think that Hermes is the man. Yeah, he was a fan. <laughs> <laughs> and Hermes was a doctor as well as being a gladiator? Okay, let's explain doctor here. Um, doctor in English has a rather weird thing in that every other language separates doctor from pillslinger. You know, Germans call them arts, um, Italians call them medici. Um, a doctor is somebody who is learned in his profession, as in a PhD, for right. example. Um, I'm a doctor, but please don't come to me with any illness. I'm a doctor of ancient history. A doctor of gladiators is a gladiator who is a master craftsman in his art. He's not just a gladiator, but he's a trainer of gladiators, telling them how to be the very best mamillo or secretor possible. The very best possible. So few of us ever attain that goal in our lives, and only one per era may wear an undisputed superlative title. But for 10 years, Flama did, in that strange world of the Roman gladiators. This has been Truly the Goats, an inclusive medium production. We'd like to thank our guest, historian and author Philip Matizic. Excerpts from his book, Gladiator, the Roman Soldier's Unofficial Manual, were used courtesy Thames and Hudson Publishers. For more books on ancient civilizations by Maddie, visit ThamesandHudson.com. That's T-H-A-M-E-S and Hudson, H-U-D-S-O-N. Extra material, show notes, blog posts, and other related stuff on the greatest of all time are available on our website at TrueOfTheGoats.com. On Facebook and Twitter, find us at TrueOfTheGoats. For more inclusive medium podcasts and video productions, visit us at inclusivemedium.com. Next time on Two of the Goats, we're talking sumo, specifically Raiden, legendary wrestler of the 1790s, and his modern-day equivalent, Hakuho. I'm Oz Davis, thanking you for listening to Truly the Goats. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network 
back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know that. Can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter, because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you gotta do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me, and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.